0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I am excited to be interviewing Jordana moore Sajese about her new book, The Jean-Michel Basquiat Reader, Writings, Interviews, and Critical Responses which was published by the University of California Press in just recently, March of 2021. Dr. Segeze is an associate professor of American art and the current editor-in-chief for the College Art Association's Art Journal. Her research focuses on modern and contemporary American art with an emphasis on expressions of blackness. Dr. Segeze's art history capitalizes, capitalizes, excuse me, on the cultural appeal of the popular in order to speak back to the exclusionary tactics of cultural institutions, while also making connections between pop culture and the reality of life in the United States. Her first book, Reading Basquiat, Exploring Ambivalence in American Art, was the first monographic study of the artist to be published by an academic press. And it reconsiders Basquiat's place in the history of American art. The book we'll be discussing today is the first comprehensive source volume on Basquiat, and it closes gaps that have until now really limited the sustained study and archiving of his work and its impact. It describes how Basquiat burst onto the American art scene in the summer of 1980, and just two short years later, at the age of only 21, he had solo exhibitions in galleries all over the world. He would ultimately become one of the most famous American artists of the 1980s, but he died tragically just eight years after that first exhibition. Through a combination of interviews with Basquiat, art criticism, previously unpublished research, and a selection of the most important critical essays on his work, Jordana provides a very full picture of the artist's views on art and culture, his working process, and the critical significance of his work. The Jean-Michel Basquiat Reader is such an important book. It will allow us to see this artist in all sorts of new ways, and it stands to really open fresh lines of inquiry. I'm excited to discuss the volume with its editor today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jordana Morsageze, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you. We appreciate you taking the time out. So I wonder if you might begin by actually telling us a little bit about yourself, where you were born, something about your background, uh, where you attended graduate school, any mentors you had along the way, and maybe most importantly, how did you become interested in Basquiat? You know, you may be tired of telling this story. I've heard you say it a little bit in in introducing this book before, but our listeners may not know anything about it. So give us some of your background if you would
1: sure of course so I was born and raised in Nashville Tennessee um, which was not at the moment when I was there a, necessarily a big art town um, we didn't have at that moment a big art museum we now have the frist Center that opened right as I was graduating college um, and my ex what was interesting about my upbringing is my exposure to art was very very limited um, I did have an uncle who was an high school art teacher um, And I was very close with him. Um, And he had been an abstract painter um, in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, And so I remember going to his house and sort of reading his time-life art books, right? Sort of one on Van Gogh and one on Picasso. Um, And so my introduction to art was was very limited, very personalized. um, And predominantly, aside from my uncle, it was a very um, traditional, white, Eurocentric history of art. Now, when I was in high school, I actually, I think I've told this story before, left my prom early um, with a friend and we went to the Blockbuster video when that was still a thing. And we found a video that we wanted to watch. And it turned out that the video we picked was Schnabel's sort of biopic Basquiat. Um, So I was about 17 years old when I first was introduced to Basquiat's work, and I always love that story because I think the way that I encountered Basquiat is kind of an artist just out in the world, right, in sort of this popular format, is a way that a lot of people encounter Basquiat today, um, through t-shirts or sneakers or advertisement, um, rather than in an art museum, right? Um, It would be many years before I saw a Basquiat painting in real life. I was actually already in graduate school when that happened. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, had a pretty straightforward um, college education, Um, aside from the fact that I was, at best, um, misdirected. Uh, I didn't really have a lot of, I I didn't have any idea of what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. Um, So I, I switched around quite a bit. I went to Vanderbilt University, wonderful liberal arts program. Uh, And I was able to take courses across a variety of disciplines, Uh, but I was always switching my major. I think at one point I was like pre-law. At one point I was in sociology, one point psychology. Um, And it was really the summer before my senior year at Vanderbilt where I realized that every elective I had taken since my freshman year had always been an art history class. And this was sort of a sign to me that I would need to maybe follow that path. This is what I'm interested in, right? Um, Maybe what would it look like if I actually committed myself to the thing that I was the most passionate about? So I declared a major, I declared a major in art history um, right before my senior year. And this was really, I think, a fundamental moment for me in in a few ways. You know, one uh, thing that was a result of this late arrival to the discipline is that I ended up taking my survey courses at the very end of my undergraduate career rather than at the beginning oh, and wow. that was a yeah very fundamental shift for me in thinking about the ways that we teach the history of art. Um, I had been exposed to these really intellectually stimulating diverse conversations about contemporary Chinese art and Mexican muralism. And then I get and I locked into a seat in a stadium-style like lecture hall and forced to witness this parade of all white men um, <laughs> and memorize it, right? Uh-huh. Um, yep. I remember having these like breakdowns in my senior year, you know, when we were kind of in the Byzantine section, right? And I thought, you know what? They're all Jesus. I don't know how to tell them apart. They're all Jesus. You know, and this was a moment where we were still on slides, so I could actually memorize the slide. So I knew this one was pink in the corner and this one was scratched. That's how I passed. That is a ridiculous way, right, to pass. And I became a full-grown art historian, right? And I could not memorize. So that really changed, you know, sort of thinking about why am I not seeing myself? Why am I not seeing Black artists? Why am I not seeing Asian artists? Why am I not seeing Latinx artists in these courses? The other thing that happened for me in that senior year is, you know, as I was applying to graduate school suddenly, right, the, it was 2000, so the economy just kind of bottomed out. No one was thinking about getting a job. Um, I hope that listeners find this re, really reassuring um, uh-huh. in this moment as I kind of entered into graduate school in this very uncertain moment. But because I declared art history very late, to my sort of dismay, I was never allowed to write an honors thesis as a senior art history major. I petitioned the department and the department chair, who will remain nameless, uh, refused to let me do it. And so I was really at a significant disadvantage when I went to graduate school. But nevertheless, I went to graduate school at the University of Illinois. um, And I really um, chose that institution because there were a lot of really great scholars and I wasn't exactly sure, again, what I wanted to do. So we had uh, Jordana Mendelson, who studies Spanish art, um, was there at the time. Rachel DeLue, who's now at Princeton, um, was the Americanist. And then Jonathan Feinberg was there as well. And he ended up being my graduate advisor. So I, you know, really took graduate school, as I was telling a recently admitted student to our own program, really one semester at a time. Am I still liking this? Is this still good for me? Um, You know, when I entered graduate school that fall was 9-11. And I remember that being a really fundamental moment of thinking, you know, is this important, (laughs) what I'm doing here? Um, But I I kept going and I did my master's degree. I actually studied conceptual art photography because I figured that I had been interested in Basquiat and I kind of looked him up as I went along in my studies. And I just figured that, you know, this wouldn't be a great dissertation topic because I'm sure someone's already written this. I'm sure someone's working on this why would I do this? This is such a popular person. Um, so I did conceptual art photography and I ended up sort of finishing my master's degree in December uh, 2003. And so I finished a little bit early because I was on fellowship and I actually had a lease in my on my apartment in Champagne until June. So I thought, I'll just try out the, the PhD program for a <laughs> semester and see if I like it. And really that's just the way that it went. And you know, I did semester by semester up until after I def- like defended my exams and was ABD. And then at that point, I decided I had just gone too far, um, <laughs> that I had better just write a dissertation um, because I had no practical skills. Um, I had never really had a job. I'd have every summer off since I was in kindergarten. Like, I don't know what else I could do. So I did finish the dissertation pretty quickly as well. Um, but that's sort of my 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 background and sort oh my of, gosh. of my education, a little bit unconventional.
0: Sure, Dan, I really love point? this story, and I'm so grateful to you for telling it. I think so many of our listeners are are going to take heart at so many of the things that that you just presented. I mean, thank goodness that your prom was no good, and you left and watched and watched that video. I mean, thank thank goodness Blockbuster existed. I guess now we would just rent it on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that, but i I am so struck by this idea of your meandering through college. maybe that's not quite the right way to put it, but you know just not knowing what to lock into i I talk to so many students I'm sure you do today too, who have this feeling that they really enjoy lots of different things and don't know what career they want to actually go into. And this idea of taking the survey last, oh, this is going to like grow all sorts of strange fruit in my brain, I, I imagine, as I, as we're all rethinking pedagogy and the role of the survey, I've thought about sometimes, I'll just put this idea out there, of two, what would happen if we taught the survey backwards, like if we started with contemporary and moved all the way back to cave painting, it, you know, how would that kind of rock the system? But I like this curriculum change idea just of, you know, of putting it last and introducing these more kind of thoughtful and and anti-canon kind of subjects first. Um, all right, I, I could talk to you the entire the entire interview just about some of the things that you said. But maybe let's circle around to just how did you come to write or edit the volume that is the Jean-Michel Basquiat reader? And you you maybe can say a little bit about your first book because I imagine they're related in terms of where this project came from. But it's always cool to find out what the the kind of source point or inspiration point was for authors as they put together volumes like yours.
1: Yeah, so, you know, my path to to studying Jean's work is is really a similarly circuitous and unpredictable path. So I actually wrote my dissertation um, on Jean-Michel Basquiat, my doctoral dissertation, that became the first book, Reading Basquiat. Of course, I would have never titled that book Reading Basquiat, knowing that I would later publish a book called The Basquiat Reader, um, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Instead of here nor there, um, mm-hmm. so I started this uh, as a dissertation, and I started my research, um, you know, really in the summer of two thousand four. Um, so as I said, like I graduated, my I finished my master's degree in December two thousand three at a lease until June, right? So my first semester in the graduate program that summer, um, my mother had actually. had to back up because my mother had moved to Basel, Switzerland, when I graduated high school, and so. From that moment, right, um, 98, I think is when she moved, for until 2006, she lived in Basel, Switzerland. So that summer of 2004, my first semester in the PhD program, I went to visit her, um, as I always did, right? My summers and my winters were spent in Switzerland. Um, and, you know, it was in that summer, there was Art Basel. And my advisor, Jonathan Feinberg, had always gotten these VIP passes to these art fairs. And this is a moment when art fairs aren't really a thing yet. It's really just Art Basel at this point. Very early, yeah. Very, very early. But he had gotten this VIP pass. He knew I was going to be in Basel. And so he said, hey, why don't you take this and why don't you go see the fair? Because what graduate student can afford to to go into this particular fair? So I went in and it was there that I actually saw the first Basquiat painting um, in person. And it was a, a work in the booth of the Bruno Bischofberger Gallery. Um, and, you know, I was just sort of transfixed. Um, I, I really, really loved it. And, you know, I kind of thought about it all summer and I went back um, in the fall and I said, I think I want to write a dissertation on Jean-Michel Basquiat. And my advisor was horrified. Um, and, you know, oh, no. partly because Uh, you know, this is 2004, right? Um, Jean-Michel had only been dead for 16 years, which isn't a very long time, um, even for someone who's working in sort of contemporary art history. Um, You know, and he was just reticent, I think, needed to be convinced, uh, not that this was a worthy topic, that it was a, a, a feasible project, that I could actually get the research done. Um, And, you know, as I moved through the dissertation process, I will say that, you know, it was really a combination of um, blind naivete and stubbornness and luck that really came together so that I could work on this artist. And one of the first pieces of luck was that my mother lived in Basel, Switzerland, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: 52 minutes by train from Zurich, where... Bruno Bischofberger's gallery was. And Bruno was the only international consistent dealer of Jean-Michel Basquiat from 1982 to 1988. He had more paintings. He sold more paintings by Basquiat than anyone else on the planet Earth. And I was 52 minutes from his office, right? Three months out of the year. Amazing. So that was a huge piece of luck. Um, and so I actually decided to take advantage of that. And so the following summer, I went back to the booth at Art Basel using my advisor's passes again. Mm-hmm. and just pretty much stalked uh, the director of that gallery. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, told him who I was, I was really interested. He was very skeptical, as almost everyone would be when I told him I was working on Jean. Um, And, you know, he said, okay, fine, you know, why don't you take the train next week and come to the gallery? And, you know, over a period of a few weeks, I was persistent, which is something that is, anyone will tell you I am. And I showed up every morning, and I was led up to this third, you know, sort of up the stairs to the conference room where I'm looking out at beautiful Lake Zurich, and Tobias, Tobias Mueller was the director of the gallery at the moment, um, would pull out these paintings from storage and just prop them against the walls, and we had this really wonderful relationship where he would just sort of tease me and be like, oh, come on, I know you want to touch the surface of it, and I would say, like, are you joking? What? I can't do that. Um, but I, I I, will admit here that I did. I completely touched them. Um, <laughs> I could not resist. And, you know, if you know Bosket's work, it is so tactile. It is so yes. you know, there's layer upon layer. You know, the sort of three dimensionality of them as they're hanging on the wall is really, really palpable. So, of course, I touched them. Um, but I would spend, you know, days at a time going through the gallery files, walking with Toby through the storage, answering questions, You know, I was someone that I think he really got along with because I was so enthusiastic, but also because I knew a lot about Jean. Um, I had, you know, my one dog-eared copy of a Tony Shafrazi catalog that I begged my mom to buy me when I was 18, and I'd memorized every painting in the book. So as we would go around, he would just sort of quiz me, like, when do you think this one was painted? When do you, right? Have you seen this image somewhere else? Tell me the title of this work. And so it was a really wonderful um, relationship, but it was pure luck because I was persistent. But he really, you know, if Toby hadn't opened up to me and provided that access, not only to the, the, the files but to the works, um, this project would have been, you know, completely impossible. And that's really what my advisor is concerned. That's where those right lied at the moment when he was hearing me saying I was going to work on this project. Is that you know I think for for people that aren't very familiar with Basquiat's work, it does seem that his work is everywhere,
0: mm-hmm. right? It's
1: it's publicly, it's on Instagram, it's in Uniqlo, it's on coach bags this season. Mm-hmm. But from an art historical perspective, the work is nowhere. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, Basquiat painted about 800 paintings um, in his short career, right, over eight years, 800 paintings in eight years. That's an incredibly prolific artist, 2,000 works down. on paper.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But I would guess that 700 of those 800 are in private collections, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, probably a little bit more than that. And what that does from my perspective as, as I was researching him is it meant that I had to make a lot of friends. I had to network and I had to be persistent and I had to cold call people and knock on their doors and beg Tobias to introduce me um, so that I could get access to the physical works. If you're, I think when I was doing my dissertation research I was able to visit the Whitney, right? The Whitney Museum of America has two Basquiat paintings. Two out of 800. MoMA Mm -hmm. has zero, right? They have maybe 12 to 13 works on paper. So you know that was the the research process for the dissertation was really just kind of all of this personal interaction, you know, really trying to meet people, trying to look them up. you know the internet wasn't really what it is today, so it was a little bit harder. It's probably looking at people's like myspace pages or something. <laughs> and as I wrote the book and you know I, I finished it and I thought it was pretty good and it turned into the first book right in in 2014. Um, but after I published reading Basquiat, one thing that I noticed is is that, well, one, it was the only monograph, right? And that was very important to me that I published the first monograph. It's still the only monograph, um, unfortunately, but I wanted to publish the first because I felt that was a really clear message to his place and significance within a history of American art. He's not just a pop star, right? That he actually has critical significance. And the arguments I make in that book are really about the discipline of art history itself and the ways in which it enacts silences around certain kinds of artists. And he was a victim of that, I think. Um, But after I published the book in 2014, I mean, and this still happens today, I must get one, two emails a month from people that want to work on Jean. Do you, have you seen this essay? Do you know what I can find? I have your book, but what else? Hmm. And over time, as I saw that no no one else is working on this, I'm getting all these questions. Um, A a big sort of catalyzing moment for me was the opening of the Broad Museum in Los Angeles and the Brandt Foundation in New York City. It was really in these moments that I realized that the work of Jean-Michel Basquiat may never become public. And that's a really fundamental shift when we think about the way that objects circulate, right, Um, in contemporary in particular you know, this is a completely new phase of an art market whereby, um, and Jean is a great example of this because whereby collectors sort of, you know, really limit public access um, to their works. You know, when the art market was a different art market, say the 50s, 60s, 70s, right? It wasn't sort of the booming thing that it is today. You know, collectors really, I think for a large part, saw themselves as performing almost a public good right when you when you talk to collectors right of that generation you know I remember uh, uh, reading a news story a few, a few years ago about this postal worker who had this like incredible treasure trope. do you remember this this incredible treasure trove of abstract yeah. expressionist art and you're like yes. what uh-huh. and he you know was sort of you know quoted saying like I didn't want this work to disappear right like I I knew it was worth something I wanted to preserve it right but for the for the record, right? For history, not for my bathroom, yeah? And so I think that once I saw the Broad open and Eli and Edith Broad own six, six or seven maybe Basquiat paintings. And I thought, you know, eventually these work will come to public collections, of course, right? But when they begin opening a private museum, I thought, oh my God, like this is is the pattern. This is what's going to happen, right? Um, That we'll have private museums right? And and so I began to really question whether or not these works would ever enter public collections. And coupled with the idea that there is no public archive of his work. So, you know, the process, my research process as an art historian is very different from a lot of my peers in that I have the responsibility to simultaneously create my own archive while performing the research. And I have colleagues at the University of Maryland who, you know, um, are archeologists, right? Like discovering the objects that they want to study, right, unearthing them. And I am doing something very, very similar. You know, in the process of making this book, I had to locate and all of these sort of extant, but very, very limited circulation, right? Interviews, criticism, Um, some of Basquiat's own writings, all of these things that would otherwise never be publicly available, right, in an easy format. Um, Even the private notebooks, which I published some excerpts in the the New Reader, even his private notebooks are owned by a private collector, right? So I think the scale of sort of the privatization of Jean-Michel Basquiat is something that I'm really um, keen to, to to try to work against, really, um, for the sake of scholarship and for the sake of the history of art.
0: Oh, there's so much that I, I want to follow up and, and ask you about and and sort of prod you to say a little bit more about. You know, I was so struck in in reading the introduction, you do mention this problem of the majority of Basquiat's output is still held by private collectors rather than being in public institutions. And I hadn't even thought about the further element of, you know, private museums versus public museums and the, the different quality there. And I, I so much agree with you that it's... Maybe not a completely unique problem that accrues to Basquiat, but but it is one that's quite singular to him. As I think over other artists, I don't know anyone else whose work is so famous and yet I've encountered so little in just the way that you are describing. In fact, I think the the first Basquiats I ever saw were at Gagosian Gallery. I mean, they you know they were being bought and sold, or, or they were on a kind of active private market, like you're describing. And then I didn't see one again until the Met Breuer had the unfinished exhibition. And they had an unfinished Basquiat that transformed my ability, I feel like, to teach him and to understand the complication of what he's doing. So maybe before we get into the book proper and and how it's organized and what's contained in it, can I ask you what we we do? Is there anything we can do about... You know, what is going to be the fate of an artist who who people aren't able to see in a museum in this way, especially when Basquiat's works, in exactly the way you were describing, are so lush in person. They're so vivid. They're so material. I mean, they are the kind of stuff that we really benefit from seeing in person, whereas I think a number of other artists in reproduction are quite good. Sometimes they even look better in reproduction than they do in person, but not Basquiat. So is there anything we can do in this regard? What's the future? Yeah, I think
1: that's a really great question. I think, you know, you're exactly on point when you say that, you know, we need actual physical access to the works, because they are so complex, and they don't reproduce as well as we think that they do. And and one reason I'll just sort of briefly point out is that, you know, I mentioned the the layering that he does within his canvases, and, you know, you have layers of paint, but also layers of paper, um, you know, photocopy drawings. Um, you have some things in oil stick crayons, some things in acrylic. Um, and those sort of nuances are very difficult to detect in reproduction. Um, there's also, I think in reproduction, we see a lot of crossed out words that are illegible in reproduction, but are actually legible in person. Right. So that's very interesting to me. Um, but I think, you know, as far as what can we do, you know, this is really a, a primary occupation of mine is, you know, I realized that I'm very interested in this artist, you know, in some way, some ways, I would say that my interest in Jean-Michel Basquiat is, is indicative of a wider interest in the discipline of art history and whose stories gets told and whose stories are preserved and who's prioritized. Um, but with this book, you know, I really kind of came out of the out of the shadows, I will say, I, was, I have to say that, you know, after publishing the book in 2014, I received a lot of um, threats, a lot of lawsuits. Um, it, it's a very contentious world um, in which to work, um, and anyone who has curated or studied or published on his work will tell you the same thing. Um, so I took t- take quite a break and was really um, timid about wanting to step into this world again. Um, which is, you know, if you follow me on Instagram, you see I've already received a very mean email about this publication. So oh, no, I think, you know, what we can do is, I think we really need to have a very open and honest conversation about calling these collectors to account. Um, I think that we really, you know, when we rely on the, the whims of private collectors, to provide access to works of historical significance, therein lies the problem, right? Um, You're negotiating personalities. I mean, if you're curating, just to back up, if you're creating a Bosco show, there are certain collectors that refuse to let their painting appear in the same room as another collector, that they have a personal grudge against. This is how petty it gets at times. I think that, you know, I have serious doubts as to whether these collectors will ever be convinced that collecting is a public good and not a private market, not a, Mm -hmm. not, you know, this isn't equity. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's just because his work is so incredibly valuable, right. As a commodity, um, people are not willing to donate, you know, the, the people that sold the, the Basquiat painting for 110.5 million paid $19,000 for it. Right. So, this is extremely profitable and I think when you have an artist that's this profitable it's always going to be difficult to convince people that this is a good idea to mm-hmm. give it away for free um, I think some of it is also irreparable right um, we we know that when when Jean died he didn't have a a will um, he didn't have a catalog resume. I mean, he wasn't a great record keeper as many 27 year old artists would we imagine or not, right? (laughs) Um, You know, the the contents of his studio were preserved, but not, some things were thrown out. Um, You know, his private uh, belongings are divided between collectors and his family. to which I don't think that they've given anyone access yet, and if they have, it certainly has not been me. Um, so some of those things, I wonder, you know, if they're just lost forever. Um, so you know, my goal is to collect what we have and to preserve it in some way um, for, for further scholarship. Right? I said in the first book that my monograph isn't meant to be the only monograph. You know, I would really like it to be the first, but not the yeah. only. Um, and really kind of invite people into this conversation um, and i realized you know after seven years of silence that maybe i needed to provide a little bit more resources um you know i couldn't rely on everyone spending three years you know traveling the globe to try see works as you said you know seeing them at the sotheby's right auction or this Christie's spring sale knocking on someone's door um, you know, I've been at people's houses before and they said, Oh, my aunt has a Boschi. Do you want me to call her? Like that's not no a good way, way. to consider yeah, wow. So I, you know, I guess the 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 short answer is I don't know what there is to be done. I think that one thing that could be done, and one thing that really um I think about a lot, and is that we may not have access to Jean-Michel anymore, and we may not have access to a lot of the works. But we do have access to the people that knew him. Um, and, you know, what I would love to see is, you know, just a an oral history project. Mm. Um, you know, I would love to see um, people interviewed. Um, and on the record, I would love to see what they have, what ephemera, what Polaroids, what scraps of paper are out there. Um, I think that, you know, the Smithsonian archives would be a wonderful place for this. Um, And and part of the reason why I decided to publish some of the interviews that I conducted in this next book was really coming from that place of trying to create an archive for the future. But I will say that every time I do a a public event for for Jean-Michel, like whether it's an exhibition or a reading or something, I always look in the audience and there's always someone who pops up that knew him. Hmm. They'll stand up in the Q and A and say, I went to high school with him. Or um, I was in an event in New York um, before the pandemic, obviously, where um, someone stood up and said, I used to own the paint store that he used to come in. No. Right? Um, another person stood up and said, I used to sit with him in his studio for hours while he painted. I never knew this. I never knew these people. Hmm. and. As I told um, the, his sisters, who are managers of the estate, they were present that night. And I, I told one of the sisters, um, I said, you know, my fear, you know, is that this will all be lost. On the one hand, I'm always excited to speak in New York because I know people are going to come out and I'm going to learn something new. But the historian side of me is horrified mm-hmm. that we're continually missing, right? These huge chunks of someone's life and of their output. So I would say if there's anything we could do, I would say that we could preserve those histories and those voices that we still have. These are people that are now in their sixties. Um, they're not gonna be around forever. So that's something that I would really like to to see to see done.
0: I think that's such a, a great answer and, and is obviously something that's so doable, maybe It's fascinating, too, how it intersects with what you were saying before about feeling sometimes like a bit of an archaeologist as you're creating this archive and researching it at the same time. You're so right that that's a very different process for most art historians, especially anybody who works sort of pre-20th century, where all of the artists you're studying are definitively dead. For the most part, what we have in terms of remnants are pretty stable. I mean... They're always making a few new discoveries here and there. I, I've just heard about these new Artemisia Gentileschi letters, and I just my mind is sort of blown by the idea of her archive growing this far after the the Baroque period. But I am glad you mentioned this idea of the maybe oral histories being part of how we can. Uh, recuperate from the, the extreme privatization of this particular artist's oeuvre. Um, and it intersects nicely with, with me saying just a little bit about the structure of the book. So it is organized around five broad sections. Uh, the first is interviews, which maybe we could talk a little bit more about. I'm fascinated by this idea of you know interviews he did in his lifetime. And then you also have in section four interviews that you conducted with people who knew him of the kind that you're describing remarkably just standing up in q and a's and things and saying oh i knew him and you know that that must be overwhelming it makes me want to ask if university of maryland has tons of research assistance for you to to be you know immediately interviewing these people and seeing what we can do with it i imagine the answer is no um, but you know we all are, are searching for more resources all the time So interviews are first, then you have texts by Basquiat, um, and you already described those excerpts uh, just a little bit before. Um, But then the way you interweave those primary source documents with contemporary criticism um, and commentary also from his lifetime and immediately after. And then the final section, which you beautifully call the afterlife of Jean-Michel Basquiat, has obituaries and various writings that occurred in the wake of his death. Um, Last but not least, I imagine most interviewers won't point out that you have an astoundingly comprehensive chronology or that all attempts have been made to make a, a chronology that is also so vital for those who want to work on this artist. So uh, I feel like I could ask you a, a ton of different things, and um, but I want maybe to ask about the interviews in particular, because I think our listeners will find how you did the interviews that you did, um, how you decided which ones to include in the section that are not interviews that you conducted, but ones that he gave in his life. There's so much choice being made in this volume. And, and it reads so beautifully and so comprehensively, though obviously there's there's always more, right? What we hope is that there's there's more and more and more in an archive to be discovered. So how did you go about interviewing these people? Was it, again, just persistence and connections? And were there any interviews you did that aren't in the volume that you wish could have been or things like that? I just would love for you to say more about that element.
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. So um, I actually write a little bit of a story in the book about how I how I end up with these interviews, and it's you know not a very conventional process. Um, I, in writing a dissertation, was able to well, my first interview was Michael Holman, um, and Michael Holman was a, a sort of a figure in the downtown New York scene. Um, he was also very um, well-known within sort of the early days of hip-hop. He hosted a hip-hop TV show. Um, And he was probably of interest to me because he had formed a noise band named Gray with Jean-Michel in 1979. So I dug up Michael. Um, He was living in New York at the time. I was living in California at the time. Um, It was 2006, I think, and I um, found him online. I found like a hotmail email address <laughs> and just emailed him. And said, like, can I come talk to you? And he said, yes, I couldn't believe it. So, you know, this was like my first, I will never forget this. It was my first, like, I'm a serious researcher trip right, yeah. to New York. I made an appointment so that Whitney could bring out the painting so I could stare at them for a couple of hours and like pretend I knew what I was doing um oh, wow. with these. And and then I remember I had bought these really what like my first pair of like professional, you know, professor lady flats, very sensible. Um, <laughs> but I had not broken them in. And I'll never forget, I was like an hour early. I had to go up to Yorkville in New York where Michael was living at the time. It's like an hour early. I was so nervous. It is September and it is a heat wave, right? And so I'm like sweating in these brand new shoes that are not broken in. I've got blisters, like my feet are <laughs> essentially just bleeding while I wake Mike my way up to his apartment. And he was really just the most generous, open person I could ever have hoped for. We talked for three or four hours about almost everything under the sun. He brought out this little beautiful um, work he has Um in his apartment um, by Basquiat. It's a, like a little flea. It's it's just beautiful. And, you know, we talked and talked and talked. And um, in the course of our conversation, I had mentioned to him that I had tried to contact two people, right, as like, my first go. And it was him and it was Fred Brathwaite. And Fred Brathwaite is better known as by Freddy. Um, he was an early friend uh, of Jean-Michel's. They lived together at a certain point. He introduced John to sort of the uptown hip hop scene, um, among other things, he also introduced him to jazz. His his godfather was uh, Max Roach, the drummer. So, you know, he, I had actually gotten his phone number through a friend I went to college with who owns a record company, still owns a record company in Los Angeles. And I said, can you give me Fat by Freddy's phone number? And he <laughs> said, yeah. So he gave it to me. Remarkable. So I mentioned this. In my interview with Michael, you know, we're getting like halfway, three quarters of the way through, it'd been, probably been about three hours. And he says, you've got to talk to Freddie. And I said, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've called Freddie and he hung, he hung up on me. Oh, no. Several times, right? Several times. Um, and he said, oh, so that's so weird. So, And I actually transcribed the part of the conversation that I heard on, on my end as Michael picks up the phone in his apartment and calls Freddie and says, <gasps> I've got this girl here. She really knows her stuff. She really wants to talk to you. Can you talk to her? I don't know what Freddie said, but he it obviously was not a yes. And so he hung up, but I think he felt so terrible that he invited me to a party that night.
0: Hmm. He's
1: like, there's a there's a new hotel open, that, the Bowery Hotel just opened. Why don't you come? My friend is having a birthday party. And I was like, okay, like I'm gonna try. So I went and it was the birthday party of Suzanne Malouk, who was Jean's girlfriend. Yes. Um, and sort of his first sort of, you know, major relationship and and sort of a, a friend for a long time, right after they had broken up. And so I got to meet Suzanne and I said like, please, 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 I'm leaving the next day. Can you, can you talk to me? Um, she said, no, I said, I'll come back. Um, so, you know, I interviewed um, Michael, I interviewed Suzanne, through Michael. Then in uh, 2010, I saw a a retrospective of Basquiat in Basel. I flew flew to Basel. My mom wasn't living there anymore. I just went to the retrospective. Toby, who worked at the Bruno Bishop Rucker Gallery, actually invited me to the VIP opening. So I went. It was very uncomfortable. Um, (laughs) Freddie was there. um, And I had this very awkward run-in with him. the father of the artist was there. That was also not a great interaction, um, but I survived. And there was another, so there was a panel, at, uh, you know, Basquiat and Friends was the name of the panel the next day, where Suzanne was there, Michael was there. Um, Stephen Torton was there, who was Basquiat's student studio assistant. Um, and they were all talking about Jean. And I actually did get to interview um, Stephen later on as I was working on the book right? Um, This is really a book project at this point. Um, Stephen did not grant me permission to publish his interview um, in this book. But I do have Michael and Suzanne. Um, That summer when I was in Basel, I actually finally got to interview Bruno. Mm -hmm. I had been trying to interview Bruno for, I don't know, at that point, seven years, you know. Um, He finally invited me up to his house where I was just completely overwhelmed I mean there's a really thin line between collector and hoarder um Mm. like a really thin line and it's really just how much money they have (laughs) right (laughs) so it's like triple hung warhols and like ming bosses on top of Chippendale sideboards and you know um there were Basquiat paintings I hadn't seen before in his house um and he interviewed me and I, I I interviewed him he interviewed me right he had like a a dog-eared kind of copy of my dissertation on his table. And he was like flipping page through page, like, where did you get this? This information is wrong. Can you send me a copy of this article? Um, And so that was the Bruno interview. That's how I did that one um, on the way to the book. And I also called up Robert Ferris Thompson as I was working on the book. um, And I published that one here. And then I have a couple that I did, you know, just for this volume. Um, You know, Dieter Buchart is a curator who has, had a hand in every single Basquiat exhibition since 2010. Mm-hmm. so I wanted to interview him as you know really a question of the market, his role, exhibitions of Basquiat, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, why aren't there more by other curators? And then Erica Bell, um, I interviewed her as well as Diego Cortez um, as a result of that New York event that I, that I mentioned um, at the Naumont Gallery I did a talk. Um, with Diego, um, Jeffrey Deitch, and Dieter moderated. So I met Diego that night um, and I said, Can I interview you for this book? And he said, Yes. And the person that stood up from the audience, and said, I used to sit and watch him for hours that I didn't know of, was Erica Bell. And so mm-hmm. I said, Let me interview you for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how I got them. It really was just all personal relationships. Um, yeah. A lot of, you know, I think just really being clear that. Um, I was interested and that I was serious. It was a lot of convincing to be honest Mm -hmm. because a lot of these people, I think we have to remember this was their friend and this person very tragically died and they don't necessarily want to relive that. Um, And they're forced to relive that because that friend broke the auction record, right? In 2017 and has never been able to fade away. Um, I think that they've also, I think, because I didn't start working on him in 2003, 2004, in that interim period, there were a lot of people, I, I imagine, that tried to work on him. Um, and I always got the sense that these other people who had said they were going to write dissertations on Boscout or said they were going to do a master's thesis, had never materialized. And these people, the people that I interviewed, felt a little bit burned by that, that it had been maybe a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them felt that in other publications, they had maybe been misrepresented. Um, So I I think there was a lot of hesitation there, and it just took a lot of personal time in order to overcome those hesitations and convince people to talk to me.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm so struck as you're explaining all that and telling these stories. I can't help but, but say, I hope you write some sort of autobiography. Maybe, I don't know, maybe in retirement, I know these things. We've I've heard you talk before about uh, how how do I say this diplomatically, how problematic writing things like or editing a volume like this reader is in terms of tenure and promotion and what we do as professors and how that counts in various ways at our institutions. But I can't help but, but say I, I find these stories so thrilling. I mean, it, it sounds like you've been in some places and met some people and seen some things in the art world, as you said before, because there's so much money in it and and personalities, I mean, really, I think hard for us quote unquote, normal, you know, everyday people to it's it, the interactions you've had with fame and fortune are remarkable. And I imagine your students are probably very interested in wait, 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 say more about that. And wait, you you talked to Fab Freddy, you know, like th- these are very cool things. I, I couldn't help as I was Zoom- Planning my my list of questions, I thought, should I ask if you tried to interview Madonna at any point? I mean, I know Madonna <laughs> has made big claims about she knew him and she loved him, and you know, makes me wonder. Uh, also, maybe thinking of Madonna um, about the the value of of different voices and and authenticity and you know, who might be saying that they knew him or, and, and actually has very little, you know, did you encounter any of that? And I don't want to put you on the spot, of course, and, and talk about people who frustrated you in various ways, but it just goes to speak more and more to the, the problems of archives and the way traditional art history taught us to do the work that we do and the gaps that you've now discovered over the course of already the years of your career. In terms of how how Basquiat book doesn't fit in in a proper sense the the canon as we've constructed it and and how working on him is hard for very unique reasons that yeah. that ha- that have a lot of intersections with other things
1: yeah I mean I think the the difficulty you know and you know I will say the primary reason I, I waited to publish some of these interviews is that they didn't really feature. Much in the first book, and I'll tell you why. Because you know, you're you're saying something that's very right. Is that you know you can't really work on Basquiat without being involved in the art world, and the art market. And that's not something that I'm very good at or interested in. I'm not, you know, I think kind of the the most glamorous art historian um you know well, i'm not posting there.
0: i'm not posting, posting like gym and, selfies oh, um and i don't know like incredibly fashionable i was actually going to make sure to ask you what your instagram is so that more people can who i'm sure <laughs> are going to be searching for you now are going to want to follow you yes absolutely um
1: so I, it's it's dr underscore by the way um, perfect
0: as it should be dr underscore all right that's that's the way to do our instagram handles please go yeah. ahead
1: so, you know, I think that when I first did the interviews, um, as I said, I, w- I was really naive. Um, I, there wasn't really a lot out there in, you know, 2003, 2004. There wasn't a lot of resource for me of of how do you interview a friend of an artist? What are you looking for? What are you, what are you interested in? And the more I talked to these people, I realized, as I said, like this was their friend. And so they had a lot of personal stories. Um, they're not art historians, right? So the things I'm looking for are maybe not things that they were looking for at the moment. Um, but I I will admit initially, you know, I got, I got kind of like wrapped up in, you know, being at the party. Um, you know, and feeling like, oh, is this what it's supposed to be like? You know, I kind of had those like visions of, you know, those old videos of like Harold Rosenberg, like sitting down at the Cedar bar, right? Like with, with the (laughs) tuning and Pollock. And I'm like, am I that? Is that me? You know, Um, and I obviously I'll just spoiler. I'm not. Um, But in my early, early days of like, you know, graduate study, I didn't know what I, what I was looking for. And, um, I would get home and I mean, first of all, I will just warn you that you should never conduct a three or four hour interview. Like transcription is a beast. Um, Do not do that to yourself. Um, And so I was transcribing it and I was realizing like, this is all very interesting, but this has nothing to do with an argument. This has nothing to do with what I'm thinking about. It's all about him as a person. And so I really pushed in the book to maybe not include as much as I could have. And, and it really was because I was determined to see him as an artist and to not get caught up in the mythology and the celebrity and the hmm. story, because I felt that that had really threatened his sort of place and his status. He became too famous right? Like Richard Marshall said, he be, first became famous, then he became famous for being famous, then he became infamous, mm-hmm. right? Like, that was sort of the the legacy of Basquiat. And and he really struggled to achieve recognition because of that. And so I was very wary of perpetuating some of these interests of like, oh, his personality, right? And, you know, if you read in the book, I published some of his obituaries, and a lot of them are about his personality. Not mm-hmm. about this is one of the greatest American artists I've ever live. right? It's he was, he had a lot of he had an anger problem. He threw something down on someone's head after they knocked by a studio door. You know, these are the stories we tell. So, you know, it's a lot about kind so of trying to parse through what's critically significant and what's just personality. And I really wasn't sure what to do with that um, the first time around. But I think you also bring up another point, which is, you know, always bothered me is that in many cases, the interviews we have are, the interviews that I could get
0: mm-hmm.
1: doesn't mean that they're the only interviews. So it doesn't mean that these are the most expert, right? It just means these are people that talk to me. And I'll give you a really good example. Um, one of the big debates in my mind is around Jean's early artistic career as a street writer named sort of under this collective SAMO, mm-hmm. stand for same old shit. He did it with two high school friends, Al Diaz and Shannon Dawson. Um, we know about Al Diaz. We don't know much about Shannon Dawson. Um, and when we look at sort of the first published photo of SAMO, right, Village Voice, December 1978, we see Al Diaz, we see Shannon Dawson, and we see Jean-Michel. Mm-hmm. But in every story told afterwards, it's only Al and Jean. And I, I wonder what's going on there. You know, yeah. we often hear from the people that are willing to speak the loudest. Um, and to my knowledge, I've never encountered Shannon Dawson. I've never met him. I've never heard him speak. He doesn't, you know, do the circuit of these, you know, um, tours and panels when exhibitions open. Um, so I think there's a lot more out there um, mm-hmm. that that we haven't uncovered. Um, but it really is just a consequence of who's willing to speak and who can I convince uh, at, yeah. at this moment.
0: Oh, it's I. It, I feel like it's it's such an exciting. I don't know he's such an exciting person to work on for all the reasons that you were just describing, and it's strange to say that someone who's so famous is so on the verge in the way in the way that you're describing. But it's it's so obvious that more serious work needs to be done on him, and more serious work following the archive that you've already begun to create with this book. Which I have to say, as I read it, I think you did a beautiful job minimizing the, the rock star quality that, that we're all already so aware of. I mean, you don't need to reiterate it in many ways. I think you handle his death with a real sensitivity where it is not sensationalized. It doesn't come to the forefront. It isn't even really mentioned very much in the book in a way that is so subtle as a change you know, or as a, as a turn away from thinking about him in this legendary mythologizing way that that we have for so long so that really serious work can come, start to come to the fore like your own. Well, I I hate looking at the clock and realizing that I've already taken up so much of your time. So I'm gonna ask you the traditional last question as much as I'd like to ask you about a a bazillion other questions about Basquiat and and the process of of putting the book together. But what are you working on now? What can we look forward to coming out next from Jordana Morsese? So I am at work
1: now on a new book. Uh, I mean, I will say that I'm I'm always working on Basquiat things. There's um, a show that's opening in Montreal next year that I'm in a, sort of a, an advisory role and I wrote for that catalogue. And there's a show coming up in Paris and I'm working on a catalogue essay for that. So my, you know, the Jean-Michel stuff always is running in the background. Um, but I have a, a new book uh, project that is looking at Representations of late 19th century black boxers Um, and thinking about them and the reconstruction period in particular um, as um, really setting up but also shoring up ideologies of white masculinity in that moment. Um, This was inspired in many ways by, you know, sort of the violence we've seen in the last decades sort of publicly seen, right, um, and recorded against Black men, and really sort of how do these men become the most threatening of all? Um, And I actually locate that within the visual rhetoric of the 19th century, um, when sort of post-emancipation culture really needed a way to position the Black body as inherently violent, um, as a threat to whiteness. And I, I think that a lot of those racial tensions literally play out Um, in the boxing ring. And most importantly, I I argue that there's a sort of piece of visual culture of Blackness that is in sport that we've really ignored up until Mm -hmm. this point. Um, These are men that are incredibly famous in their time but we know virtually nothing about them. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my new project and I'm hoping that it'll be out in 2023.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm particularly enthused to hear about that. I work on masculinity. So any contributions to, to that line of thinking, especially as it intersects with a race, is just at the very forefront of, of what I can't wait to gobble up and, and hopefully interview you, you know, in 2023 about next. So all I can say is I really enjoyed talking to you about this volume today. I think it stands to make a really significant contribution to art history. My name is Alison Lee, and you've been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I've been talking to Sorgen- Jordana, excuse me, more Sajeze about her new book, The Jean-Michel Basquiat Reader, Writings, Interviews, and Critical Responses. I hope many of you will pick it up. Thanks so much for listening.